Welcome to The Landscape. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger, recording on vacation in sunny Santa Ynez, California this week. That sounds really lovely. It is really lovely. (laughs) (laughs) We, We are excited to bring you this episode on permitting reform, which I know sometimes can make your eyes glaze over a little bit, but it has definitely been in the news a lot this uh, this week, and it's really important. Uh, so last week, Senator Joe Manchin dropped the text of his much-anticipated permitting reform bill, which would have set strict timelines for environmental reviews of energy infrastructure projects, and it would have greenlit the Mountain Valley Natural Gas Pipeline, which Senator Manchin very much wants in order to ship natural gas, that is to say methane, from West Virginia into Virginia. Folks in Virginia, not so excited about that. Uh, This is the whole deal that Democratic Party leaders had promised Manchin in exchange for his vote to pass the Inflation Reduction Act, But obviously, this is all far from guaranteed. Manchin tried attaching this permitting reform language to the must-pass spending bill that keeps the government running. That all fell apart this week when it became clear the package couldn't clear the Senate. And so the spending bill, the continuing resolution, looks like it is just going to go ahead and pass cleanly without anything permitting-related attached to it. Right. Um, That bill, I will note, includes over $2 billion in funding for wildfire victims, which is much needed. So it's it's a good thing that that bill is going through. Also, it keeps the government running, like Aaron said. So lots of good news there. (laughs) Um, But, you know, um, it doesn't seem like permitting is going anywhere. Um, Democrats and Republicans are all saying that they want to see some type of permitting reform. And, well, not all of them. Bernie Sanders doesn't want any permitting reform, but nope. but um, a lot of player, a lot of big players on both sides of the aisle do, including the White House. Um, and so, um, it's likely that we'll see something like what Manchin put out come back up for a vote at some point in the next couple of months. Um, Senate Republicans are actually rallying around a permitting bill that would basically put states in the driver's seat on public land decisions, as well as actually gut parts of the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, um, which Manchin's bill kind of skirted around um, actually touching NEPA. So, you know, it's it's possible we'll see something like Manchin's bill come back. It's possible we might see something even worse come up. Um, so all of that is just to say that we think it's still very relevant to talk about permitting um, as it's not going anywhere. And so with that, we should bring in our guest today, Jamie Plune. She is a research professor at University of Utah's Wallace Stegner Center. She's an expert on NEPA. In a recent research paper, Plune and her colleagues analyzed over 40,000 Forest Service NEPA decisions since 2004. We're going to talk to her today about what NEPA is, how we can speed up permitting without sacrificing fragile ecosystems and vulnerable communities in the rush and necessary rush to transition to renewable energy. Jamie Plune, welcome to The Landscape. Thank you for having me. Let's start out with the obvious question and the alphabet soup so we just get it out of the way. What is NEPA and how does it work? Okay. Um, NEPA is the National Environmental Policy Act. It was passed unanimously in 1969, and it's often referred to as the Magna Carta of environmental law. 
Another way to think about it is it's basically a look before you leap statute. It's a procedural requirement that before taking an action that may have a significant effect on the environment, the government stops and considers the potential environmental impacts of the decision, discloses those impacts, and accepts public comment. Um, I think that the a good articulation of the intents of NEPA was stated by Senator Jackson when the bill passed, which is basically that we do not intend as a people or a government to create unnecessary or avoidable environmental harm. So, you know, we're talking about permitting. So let's go ahead and just get into the weeds because that's that's where we're headed. Um, Can you talk about the differences between an EIS, an environmental impact statement, an environmental assessment or an EA, and also uh, kind of talk to us about what categorical exclusions are, because those will probably come up in our conversation. There's a lot of talk when we're talking about permitting and when we're talking about NEPA, people often talk about streamlining. And it's important to understand exactly how NEPA works. And this gets at your question. NEPA has three tiers of review an environmental impact statement, an environmental assessment, and a categorical exclusion. And those tiers require different levels of analysis depending on the expected environmental impacts of an action. So if there's a proposed action that's expected to have a significant effect on the environment, it undergoes the most thorough analytical rigor, which is an environmental impact statement. But there are scores of other actions that have a less significant effect on the environment, and those undergo slightly less rigorous analysis, which is the environmental assessment. And then finally, there are thousands and thousands of actions that the government takes every single day that have a presumptively insignificant effect on the environment. And those are analyzed through a very truncated analysis called a categorical exclusion. Now, It's very important to understand when people are talking about NEPA, most of what is discussed is the environmental impact statement. However, that is a very small percentage of the decisions that are subject to a NEPA review. Um, A Government Accountability Office research report estimated that government-wide about 1% of all decisions subject to NEPA are analyzed through an environmental impact statement. Despite that, almost all of the discussions regarding NEPA and permitting focus on the environmental impact statement. And there's virtually no research regarding how those other two tiers of analysis are implemented Hmm. and how they actually operate, even though those are really the guts of how NEPA works. And that was one thing that our research um, project was designed to address is When we're talking about NEPA reform and permitting reform, we really should be making decisions and having discussions that are based on evidence. So we wanted to contribute to the discussion by providing evidence about how NEPA actually operates. The other acronym that often gets thrown around in the same breath as all of those others is a FONSI, which is not a Happy Days character. That's right. <laughs> but but important <laughs> when they show up. <laughs> what, what, what's That's a FONSI? Right. So a FONSI is a finding of no significant impact. And it's basically de- the decision that is issued after an environmental assessment has been completed. And they conclude that there is not going to be a significant impact. 
they would issue a FONSI. Similarly, a categorical exclusion might come with a FONSI. Um, FONSIs are actually really important for another reason, which is that um, we can have what we call mitigated FONSIs, which is the idea that there may be a project that when it comes through the door, it has potentially significant impacts. And through the review process, those impacts are mitigated to a level where they're not considered significant. And um, that's really where the hard work of NEPA and the benefits of NEPA shows up. And in fact, it's the purpose of NEPA. The idea that a project comes through the door, it has a whole bunch of things we haven't thought of before. We look at them, we consider the impacts, we mitigate impacts, we avoid impacts. And as a result, the project that walks out the door is a better project. I just want to then clarify how this works in practice. And and is this one of the things that ends up causing trouble? If you have an agency say there's a categorical exclusion here and someone else says, no, you need an environmental assessment, or an agency says, we're going to do an environmental assessment and someone else says, oh no, this deserves to be a full-on environmental impact statement. How does that play out in practice? And does that also then lead to litigation? Um, sort of two questions, and maybe I'll address the second question first. Does this lead to litigation? So um, really, when we're talking about making these types of decisions, it's the agency who is analyzing the project that's making the decision. And that agency has expertise. And they're also cloaked with the mantle of authority to make a decision that is justifiable. So if that agency takes all of the knowledge that it has and then uses its expertise and applies its discretion to make a decision, that's kind of the agency process. That's a good thing. It's public. It's disclosed. It can be litigated, um, but even if it were litigated, as long as the agency has made a justifiable decision based on the evidence before it using the discretion that it's afforded, that litigation is not likely to be successful. Um, now, I think it is helpful. There's a lot of talk during, when, when people talk about NEPA, there is a lot of talk about litigation. And I think it's helpful to recognize there are two aspects of litigation. One is, are there delays that are caused by litigation? And then the second one is, are there delays that are caused by litigation aversion? Those two things are two separate problems. So looking at delays caused by litigation, there's some fantastic empirical research that came from the Stegner Center analyzing the degree to which litigation actually delays projects. And what they found is that for all NEPA decisions that they analyzed, I think they were 1,499 or something like that, 0.22% of those decisions were litigated. So the amount of decisions that are litigated are very, very small. Similarly, the Government Accountability Office did uh, an investigation to determine whether or not litigation was delaying the implementation of hazardous fuel reduction projects in the Forest Service, which is a big political thing. So this was nice. We have some evidence. And what they found was that between um, 2006 and 2008, there were 1,419 decisions made. Of those, 29 decisions were litigated. And of those, but even more importantly, only 1% of the land's 
that were going to have these fuel treatments on them. Only 1% of the acreage was affected by this litigation. And so it's really important to realize this talk about litigation delays is talking about a massively small percentage of NEPA decisions. The second issue, litigation delay, is something that we did get into in our research paper, and that's a different type of delay that is avoidable. And that type of delay is caused by this fear that a decision will cause litigation. And due to the fear, there may be um, a fear that if an agency member makes a decision that is litigated, it could have a negative effect on their career trajectory. And as a result, Maybe they bulletproof the document, or maybe they just like analyze it for a really long time so that they don't have to issue the decision. Or maybe um, maybe it just kind of sits on the desk for a while because the long rerun. Now, those kinds of litigation aversion delays are not productive. They're not helpful, and they can't be solved. They can be, they're a cultural problem. They're not a structural problem. I, I could imagine our friends say over at Earth Justice, pointing out that if that is also just doing the science and getting it right, that's a good thing, right? Now, would you that, that maybe that's not a delay in, in the way you're talking about it. That's just doing the science you need to do the assessment? And I think that goes back to my original um, um, suggestion is that I'm talking if when an agency is making a decision according to the way that the structure should be, it would be the decision would be made based on all of the evidence that is necessary for that decision. Um, And we all benefit from it. And then if an agency makes a decision that is contrary to the evidence before it or fails to consider evidence that should have been considered when it makes that decision, then that decision should be challenged. And in that case, litigation serves all of society. Um, so I, I think there's a distinction between gathering the evidence that's necessary for the decision and focusing the discussion on what's relevant to this decision versus what we're calling bulletproofing a document, which would be just throwing the kitchen sink in there and making sure that it's so big that it covers every possible issue, which is not necessarily an efficient way to make a decision. Hmm. Yeah, a fine line there. So before we move on, and we'll talk more about um, sort of the the time it takes to do these analyses and that stuff that you guys looked at in your study. But before we go to that, let's um, step back and talk about how permitting reform in the way that we've been seeing it in the news um, actually relates to NEPA. Like, it's not seeking to write a new NEPA, right? It's, it's something else. Um, Jamie, could you just give a sort of it, help people understand this? So permitting reform is um, wrapped up in the concept of NEPA. NEPA is an element of permitting, but it's what we refer to, or I should say what the Government Accountability Office refers referred to as an umbrella statute, which is a statute that um, facilitates compliance with other laws. So Often when a project comes to the table, it requires several different permits. It might require a Clean Air Act permit, a Clean Water Act permit, an Endangered Species Act analysis, um, and and it might even require some state permits or local ordinance permits. 
all of those, um, MIPA is this overarching structure that often serves as an umbrella that facilitates compliance with those other laws. So through the analysis that gathers the environmental impacts, that provides the evidence and justification and helps coordinate different agencies working together to gather that information to make a justifiable decision on their little permit responsibility. And so um, theoretically, even if NEPA disappeared, you would still have the requirement to comply with all of these other laws. And in fact, there's some valuable research coming out of the Stegner Center indicating that using NEPA for this um, process of gathering information and justifying a permit decision actually speeds up the process. So there was um, a natural experiment that was set up with critical endangered species habitat designations, where due to a circuit split, NEPA analysis was required in some jurisdictions and not required in other jurisdictions. So the Stegner Center was able to compare the timeframes between the critical habitat designations that went through the NEPA process and those that didn't during the exact same um, time frame. And what they found is on average, those designations that went through the NEPA process were three months faster than the ones that did not go through the NEPA process. So when done properly and used as an umbrella statute and a coordinating um, feature, NEPA has the ability to facilitate efficiency in government decisions. So it can be, it, it can be the glue that holds a process together and at the end of the day makes it more efficient. Yes, you could call it the glue or you could call it maybe the skeletal structure that provides the justification and helps agencies coordinate with each other and gather the necessary data to make a justifiable decision. All right, so let's then dive into this study that came out of the the Stegner Center looking just at NEPA decisions from the Forest Service. Uh, 16-year time frame and 41,000 decisions, which I guess, number one, that is, I guess, stunning in the the amount that NEPA is used just in the Forest Service. This is something that I guess certainly impacts everyone across the West, even if you don't realize it, that you are interacting in some way with a NEPA decision uh, anytime you're you're in a national forest or on public lands. What did what did that study find as as it relates to NEPA timelines and efficiency? Great. Um, yes. So the first thing, as you said, we analyzed forty thousand decisions, and the first thing we did was really document how is it implemented at all levels of analysis. Like I said, most evidence focuses on environmental impact statements, and we wanted to know how does it function overall. And what we found is first, streamlining already happens. So 2% of the decisions were environmental impact statements. And that's important because the Forest Service does the most environmental impact statements of any other any agency within the government. Uh, 17% were environmental assessments and 81% were categorical exclusions. The second thing that we found was that efficiency happens. So the vast majority of decisions that we looked at within each level of review were made within a short time frame that was quite an efficient time frame. Um, but then at every level of review, the 
if you graphed the curve of decision-making times, you have a big, the glut of decisions, and then each curve tailed off where at every level of review, there were some decisions that took a very, very long time. So each one of these had this long tail. And the, the result is that um, if you compared the mean versus the median, you end up with very different times in determining how long each level of analysis takes. And in fact, most research that has been done focuses on the mean time, but we found there was quite a big difference between the mean and the median time. So focusing on the median time, what we found was that the median time for completion of an environmental impact statement was 2.8 years. Um, for an environmental assessment, it was 1.2 years. And for uh, categorical exclusion, it was four months. And these numbers are quite different than these long numbers that you hear in the political debate. The other important thing that we found was that that, that mean doesn't necessarily reflect how efficiently some decisions are made. So when we look at the average time for the top 25% most efficient in each level of analysis, we found that each of those timeframes were almost closer to the lower level of analysis. So the average time for the top 25% of environmental impact statements was only 1.6 years. For uh, environmental assessment, it was eight months. And for a categorical exclusion, it was two months. So these are quite different timeframes than are what are put out in the public debate. And it tells us something very important, which is that efficiency happens, it is happening, and it can happen under the existing regulatory, um, statutory and regulatory structure. Uh, the third thing that we found is that the level of analysis does not dictate decision-making times. So Often in these discussions about how we're going to reform NEPA, there's this idea that we just have to stuff everything down into a lower level of review in order to achieve efficiency. And if it were the um, level of analysis that is causing delay, then we would expect to see very distinct timeframes that EISs take this long, you know, environmental assessments take this long and categorical exclusions, they're always fast and they only take this long. But that's not what we found. What we found is that the um, timeframes are much more fluid. And that tells us two things. First of all, that a less rigorous level of analysis does not always result in fast, faster times. So we found categorical exclusions that were extending out four or five years which clearly is not a requirement of the regulatory structure. Um, and then it also tells us that analytical rigor can be achieved, achieved efficiently. So those were um, important findings. And it also made us wonder if it's not the analytical rigor that's causing delay, what is it that's causing delay? So we developed a multivariate regression analysis to try to figure out whether we could predict which types of projects would land on the tail? Which are Why are there certain projects that just get bogged down? And so we were able to look at the level of analysis, the types of activities that were involved in the project, the um, complexity of the project, like how many activities were involved in it, uh, when it was initiated, where it was initiated. And really what we found is that um, all of those NEPA-specific factors could only predict about 25% of the variation. 
And that told us that the things that are causing these delays are actually outside of the NEPA process. There's something other than the structural requirements of the statute and the regulatory requirements. So then we dug down further into that to try to understand exactly what is it? What are these delays? Can we identify them? And we found essentially three themes that seem to be the root causes of delays causing these projects to bog down and end up on that tail. And um, those delays were, or sources of delay, were uh, basically three buckets. Um, Agency capacity, so that's staff availability, expertise, budgets. Um, The next one was operator delays. So waiting for information from the operator, but also market delays or changes in a project or changes in the circumstances that may not cause the project to go forward. And thirdly, um, compliance with other laws. Okay. So I remember just enough college statistics to be a danger to myself and others, but <laughs> I, I want to take a stab at, at summarizing what you just said there is that when you've got a gap between the mean and the median, it Mm -hmm. means you're looking at a bunch of outliers or just a handful of outliers that are skewing that average, uh, in this case, northward. Right. And, uh, and so when we talk about the need for NEPA reform or NEPA delays, we are actually just talking about a few outliers in the process and not the vast majority of stuff that happens under NEPA. Is that that accurate? That that is our finding. Yes, we've um, the median times I think are pretty consistent with what people would expect for something to take, and particularly when you look at the top twenty five percent of the most efficient decisions, those are well within the time frame of a reasonable time frame for making a decision. So then, the second half of that is then in those outliers it seems like a lot of the delays are not actually part of the NEPA process, but external stuff, whether it's political or non-NEPA related delays. Is that, you know, is that, is that a little bit of too broad a brush there? Well, no, but I'm going to refine it slightly. And the way I would rephrase it is to say that the delays are not caused by the regulatory or statutory requirements of NEPA. But they are caused by things that are happening during the NEPA process. Got it. And distinguishing between those two things are very important because if it's not the language of the statute or the regulations that's causing the problem, then changing that isn't going to solve the problem either. So it's very important to identify what are the cultural or structural things during the NEPA process that are causing delay and let's solve those problems. Um, I want to bring in the mansion bill text here are some of the, the things that he was pushing for um, with that. It, the bill set a two-year time limit for reviews of major projects under NEPA. I'm guessing that means across EIS, EA, and categorical exclusion, just basically saying you can't take more than two years on any of those um, for a major project, which um, seems like from your analysis, you found that actually the majority of projects were being completed in under two years anyways. So am I getting that right? It sort of seems like this bill is asking um, 
for something that basically or, most or already happened. Or a problem that doesn't really exist all that often. <laughs> well, I would like to provide a little bit of nuance on that perspective. Um, I do agree that efficiency happens. Um, but I want to distinguish between two, I want to actually make two different points. The first point is there is a lot of focus on delay. And I think it's very important when we talk about delay, let's distinguish between productive delay and unproductive delay. So there may be some projects that are delayed because they're bad projects, or maybe they need redesign, or maybe they have unacceptable environmental impacts that need to be mitigated. Or perhaps they're being delayed because they don't meet the requirements for the permit that they're trying to get. And finally, maybe they're being delayed, um, and we can get more into this, because they're controversial projects that are imposing an extraordinary burden on a certain number of people who have a right to speak out. Those kinds of delays are what I would say are productive delays. They're delays that result in a better project in the long run and also a more democratic process. A permitting system that gets rid, seeks efficiency by getting rid of those delays just hurts all of us. So then the second thing is, well, then what are the unproductive delays? Unproductive delays are delays that are caused by a lack of agency capacity, not having the person who has sufficient expertise to analyze the project, not having mentoring within the agency to help someone who's new get through the process efficiently, not having an adequate budget to be able to prop and quickly process the permit. Um, additionally, other unproductive delays are like poor coordination between agencies or not having concurrent review or not sharing data efficiently between different jurisdictions. Those kinds of things are unproductive delays that we should address and can address and are worthy of what I would say we should focus on when we're talking about permitting reform. Um, the second question goes to deadlines. And I think deadlines can be a very productive and effective way to increase efficiency. All of us have experienced the fact that that one thing that doesn't have a deadline sits on the back of the desk and it just doesn't get done. So having deadlines is a good thing, but there need to be features that are in place to make those deadlines productive. So the first thing is the deadlines should be project specific and sensitive to the data needs of the project. Um, they should be agreed upon by all of the agencies who have to comply with the deadline. And, um, and they um, should also have escape hatches. So if there is a justifiable reason, if there's a reason that the deadline is going to be missed and it's justifiable, for example, the staff member who was working on this, their position was cut and we don't have anyone to do the job um, or unforeseen circumstances. We were analyzing this. We thought it was a very, very simple problem. It turns out it's a very complex problem. We have to look at it harder. That's an unforeseen circumstance that's going to cause you to miss your deadline. Those kinds of escape hatches are productive and they're helpful. The problem with, but if you have deadlines that are mandatory deadlines and there's a presumption that once the deadline comes, the permit's going to be approved, that's an unproductive deadline. Um, so, and then because you've taken away the, those escape hatches in those cases, if you yeah, partially the escape hatches, but then also this idea that like 
oh, once a certain time passes, we're just going to approve the project. Or if it takes too long, we're going to approve the project. That encourages gaming of the system. So then that's the next thing is within, within those deadlines, there needs to be a way to distinguish between delays that are attributable to the operator or not caused by the agency and delays that are, um, or, you know, so if, if it takes a year, that should be a year of the agency working on the project with the information that it needs from the operator. It can't be that they received the permit and asked for more information for the, from the operator and didn't get it for six months. It, it, it encourages shot clock management by whoever's up creating the project. Sure. Yeah. yeah. In terms of then identifying how much of the issues there are with NEPA that, that are they need to be addressed, from your research, is there a sense of how much can be fixed by throwing money at the problem, which is to say bodies, expertise, more funding to the agencies to fund more people to do the analyses, to do the science? And do, is that just the, the key to... To a more efficient NEPA in in some of these cases, I think that um, I have two answers to your question. The first answer I would say is that our our research certainly shows that efficiency is possible and it can be accomplished, and it can be accomplished within the existing legal and regulatory structure. Um, outside of our research, there is a lot of work that's being done on implementing um, best practices and exploring ways to make the NEPA process go more smoothly. And our paper did look at, we made recommendations, and then with each recommendation that we made, we identified projects that used some of those practices with productive results. Um, and, and there is a lot more research and work that's being done on that, particularly by the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Committee, which was um, created under the FAST Act. And they've been doing really great work on identifying best practices and then working at getting those best practices incorporated into the way that NEPA is implemented in different agencies. And um, some of those best practices are um, um, having deadlines, but having negotiated deadlines, particularly when you're talking about a multi-agency decision, so these larger decisions, but having um, agreed upon deadlines that are negotiated between the agencies that facilitate concurrent review and using a very robust and thorough scoping process in the beginning of the project and even inviting stakeholders in in the very beginning of the project in order to identify data needs, um, identify problems with the project early on, identify a way to compile data and share data across jurisdictions, and even um, incorporate some of the mitigation that would be needed down the road up in the front end. And all of those practices really are ways of using the NEPA process to produce a better decision. As far as you know, are any of those best practice recommendations included or funded in any of these NEPA reform bills that we're seeing in Congress right now? There is some money that goes to the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Committee and some of the features of the FAST Act, which um, were included in Manchin's bill. 
However, there were other pieces that um, were, what's very important about the FAST Act is that it does achieve expedited review, but not at the cost of lowering environmental standards. They're very, very clear that these, this analytical, the analytical rigor that's required by NEPA can still be achieved with the efficiency. And there's less focus of that in the mansion bill. Um, additionally, there are features in the mansion bill that focus more on um, what I would characterize as some troublesome ways of facilitating interagency review, and maybe even focusing on this idea that um, the measure of success is quick approval of a permit. And I would challenge that that's the appropriate measure of success. <laughs> um, so there are features in the mansion bill that really kind of facilitate situations where if a project starts to get hung up, we're going to bring in more political pressure or we're going to remove decision-making authority from the agency that is potentially not ready to issue a permit for that problem. And um, those are what I would call unproductive reforms. Hmm. So I'll, I'll go ahead and ask you this straight up, Jamie. Do you think that there is a need for legislative reform of permitting, um, especially for for projects like renewable energy transmission and things like that. Obviously, there's some people who are in this permitting reform conversation for the wrong reasons who are trying to get oil and gas fast tracked. Um, but do you think that there is a, a need to have Congress fix anything or or like you were saying earlier, can this mostly be managed without new legislation? I would say two things. Um, first, the National Environmental Policy Act is a very um, simple and really elegant law. It's seven pages long. Its requirements are very straightforward and they're manageable. Similarly, the traditional regulations that we have for NEPA have been in place for a very long time and they are also, they're elegant and they're simple and efficiency can be achieved within that statutory and regulatory structure. Um, however, a lot of the reforms that need to be put in place do require congressional action, particularly there has to be funding. <laughs> um, and then also, you know, another part of capacity is creating confidence in the agencies that they have the ability to act and that when they do make decisions, that those decisions will not carry um, career or political repercussions if it's an unpopular decision. I want to ask about the risk of unintended consequences here. If you, if there is a permitting NEPA streamlining bill that adds uh, these kinds of timeline pressures or the the opportunity for political interference with NEPA reviews to, to get projects out the door, is there a risk that that ends up in the end opening the door to more litigation because agencies have cut corners and ignored the the fundamentals of NEPA. And if you if you do permitting reform the wrong way, do you end up then creating sending even more projects into court um, because of the the truncated timelines or without those kinds of escape hatches 
that you would need in order to make sure that you haven't haven't cut corners and if you discover there's more public input that you need or more analyses that are going to take more time um, is is there a risk there certainly i this is the i think of it as the tail wagging the dog problem mm-hmm. If you create deadlines and the agency's decision-making process is dictated by meeting the deadline, then you're really ending up with the deadline driving the analysis, and that does not necessarily result in a justifiable decision. For the agency decision to be justifiable and upheld, it needs to be a reasonable decision that's made on the available evidence and consistent with the legal and statutory requirements. And if that can't be done within this mandatory timeline and you just shoot a decision out the door to meet the mandatory timeline, I think you're at risk of having that decision challenged, rightfully so. Um, Additionally, there's very good evidence from the Stegner Center that when a decision is rushed out the door and is later required to be supplemented, it does cause significant delays, delays that are take much longer than it would have taken just to make the right decision in the first place. Hmm. Great question, Erin. Jamie, one thing I want to ask you about um, that's sort of been, that I've seen come up in this discussion about permitting reform um, is is this idea of like, increasing public input. Um, I, I read a piece from, I forget uh, the exact name, but it was in Native News Online by an Indigenous activist who was saying, you know, the only permitting reform we need as Indigenous people is permitting reform that gives us more of a voice in this process. Um, so I want to ask you about that in your analysis. Um, do you think there's a way to increase opportunities for public input without increasing delays? I do. And in fact, a lot of the best practices that were have been um, piloted and then now are being kind of highlighted as best practices and encouraged by the Federal Permitting Improvement Steering Committee really gets at that question. I think one, um, maybe I'll call it habit that agencies have gotten into with public comment is to have a project do your analysis, have all of that happen kind of behind the doors. And then the public comment period comes on the back end. And it's sort of this, at the end of the day, check the box experience. And that's not necessarily the most productive way to engage with public comments. Some of the more um, innovative practices that have been um, spearheaded and proved to be very accessible is to bring that public comment in earlier on by involving stakeholders and a wide range of stakeholders in some of these pre-application meetings or in um, these scoping meetings so that early on constituencies who will be affected by a decision have an opportunity to comment on the proposed project and suggest mitigation or suggest avoidance strategies that could address their concerns at a time where it's more cost-effective for the project proponent to respond to those concerns. And um, that's one way that we can have, and that in the end increases, it makes the decision more justifiable. It decreases the cost for the project proponent because they're not having to um, defend a project that they've gone far down this road that has a design problem. They don't have to redesign something at the um, 
last minute. So it really is a way to increase public participation and those voices, um, maximize our opportunities to avoid and mitigate uh, consequences or impacts, and then also comply with the requirements of NEPA. And in fact, where it has been, there are a couple projects we talked about in our paper where that was implemented, and it actually did end up in a faster process in the long run and moving the project more quickly towards the implementation phase. And it also, um, in each instance that we discussed, there was no litigation involved in the project, even though they were very, very big projects. Before we wrap, are there any questions that we're not asking here or that Congress is not asking right now that they should be asking when it comes to permitting reform and the green energy transition? I would say two things. Um, I think that the public discussion right now is really focused on this idea of like, what do we want? Do we want a fast energy transition or do we want a thorough environmental analysis? And I think that um, that framing of the issue creates a false dichotomy. This idea that we have to choose between environmental standards or efficient decision making. Really, the question we should be asking ourselves is, can we improve efficiency, avoid redundancy, decrease time and cost of navigating the permit process? The answer to that is yes, we can, and we should do that. And there are, we're already in the process, but we can implement a lot of those changes that will achieve every one of those ways of achieving efficiency. The second question is, should we weaken environmental standards or analytical rigor in order to achieve speed? And I think the answer to that is absolutely not. Um, permitting catches problems before they get bigger. Every single day, we are dealing with the problems of climate change that are really, really troublesome. And I think that should serve as a daily reminder for us that downplaying environmental consequences does not make them go away. It just makes them harder to deal with. And so we should think of the permitting process in the same way. It's an opportunity for us before a project gets going to say, hang on, can we do this better? And I'll just say one, one last thing that I do think about a lot, which is um, when we talk about permitting and the permit process and um, the decision-making process and delays, I think it's really helpful, again, to go back to that idea of productive and unproductive delays. You know, the other day, NASA chose to delay launching its um, shuttle. And the reason is because when they went through their checklist, they determined that it wasn't safe. And as a result, they delayed the launch. And that no one says that that's an indication that NASA doesn't work. In fact, if NASA had gone forward with their decision to launch the shuttle despite all of these risks, that would be an indication that NASA is broken. And I think we should think of the permitting process the same way. We go through our checklist and if there's something that says like, hey, this isn't safe, we should listen to that. And even if it causes a delay, that's a short-term delay that really services all of society in the long run. That I think is a great place to leave this conversation. Jamie Plune is a research professor at the University of Utah's Wallace Stegner Center. Uh, we will link to any number of these papers that we discussed here in this podcast in the show notes so you can 
dive in and look at all 40,000 of those Forest Service NEPA decisions for yourself. Jamie, thank you so much for taking the time today. We really, really appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation. Well, I suppose the best news this week is that Manchin's bad permitting bill did not pass the Senate. But in other good news, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill last week that will remove a racial slur for Native American woman from nearly 100 geographic features in place names across his state. That builds on the effort underway at the Interior Department to remove the same word from federal public lands and places. While some people may think this doesn't matter or that we've got bigger fish to fry, Native communities have made it clear that this is a priority for them. So we're glad to see the federal and state governments listening and stepping up to fix it. Well, that does it. You have made it to the end of what may be the wonkiest episode of The Landscape yet. As always, we are eager to hear your feedback. You can email us, podcast at westernpriorities.org. If you want to keep up with all of this permitting business, and really you should, go ahead, sign up for our daily newsletter, Look West. We send it out every morning. It has all of the developments that affect Western public lands, including any more attempts to mess with permitting and that's it for this episode thanks again to jamie plune for taking the time to walk us through the intimidating world of permitting reform and thank you for listening to the landscape mm-hmm.